Uh, remember this, um, uh, no evening service uh, next Sunday. Now, if uh, you have a Bible with you, uh, our passage tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will be reading from verse 2 to verse 16. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1138, 1138. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, reading from verse 2 to verse 16. We've been going through the series of sermons through 1 Corinthians, looking at some of the challenging things that uh, Paul uh, um, challenges the church at Corinth about. And tonight we come to the issue of head covering. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, reading from verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should uh, cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for women, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let me pray for us. Gracious and loving Father in heaven, this is your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's been preserved and recorded for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit tonight to understand it. We pray, Lord, that you will help us um, uh, to hear, to listen, and to apply uh, your word to our lives into our context. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
uh, we come tonight uh, to what is arguably one of the most difficult passages of the whole Bible. Is this a passage to do with dress codes and hairstyles within the context of the local church? Is this what this is that what it's about? Is this a passage to do with modesty and propriety within the context of public worship? Is this a passage to do with the danger of cultural assimilation where the pagan practices of the world are influencing and impacting the practices of the church? Is that what it's about? Is this a passage to do with gender markers and gender distinctions and roles within the body of Christ and within the home? Is this a passage to do with the headship of the husband and the submission of his wife within the context of marriage? Well, in our passage tonight, um, there is a, sen a sense in which all of these different things come together, culture, gender distinctions, church practices, worship, honor and shame, and theology. It sort of blends together, and I think that's what makes this such a complex passage to unpack, and that's why commentaries uh, go in different directions when it comes to this passage. It's one of those most highly debated passages in the Bible. It is an extremely complex passage, and for the sake of clarity tonight, um, I've decided to uh, divide up the message, or at least structure it, uh, in a way where we're going to look at what Paul says to the men first in the congregation, what is it that Paul has to say to them, and then look at what Paul says then to the women. And then finally think about what's the, what's the theological framework to be thinking about through all of this. Uh, but before we do this, I'd like uh, you to see that even though the church at Corinth was a riddle with problems, yet uh, they had not completely rejected the teachings of Paul. And this is where Paul begins in this chapter. And I don't know whether Paul does this because he feels like all that he's been writing is just uh, about problems and issues in the church. But as he begins chapter 11, he begins by commending them. So he begins, if you want, with a bit of a pastoral touch. He begins by praising them because in spite of all the challenges and the divisions and the issues that they've been facing, they've kept the teachings that Paul delivered to them. This is how our passage begins. It begins with a word of encouragement. He says to them in verse 2, Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. Now, the words traditions here does not mean the traditions of men. Uh, it does not refer to man-made traditions. It refers to the teachings uh, that Paul delivered to them uh, either by word or by letter. We have an example of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 15 when Paul says, uh, uh, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And I think Paul uses the word traditions here, and I think he, the, way, why, the reason why he uses this is that he's pointing to his preaching material. All of the New Testament hasn't been written yet, so he's pointing to his, new, uh, to his preaching material as the traditions. But they're as authoritative as God's Word. But the point is, 
before he jumps into this very difficult passage with them, he wants to encourage them. He wants them to know that uh, just as they've listened to him in the past, they can do so again now. He wants them to know that their spiritual well-being matters to him. This being said, uh, let us look at the rest of our passage together. So first, uh, thinking about what Paul says to the man in the church at Corinth. I think that it would serve us well to know something, something about the context in which Paul is writing. In fact, it's, it's almost essential. I don't think you can properly understand this passage unless you, we have an understanding of its context. So in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing, one of the things that we need to note and be aware of is the similarity uh, with which men and women dressed. So in the days of Paul's writing, both men and women wore robes. And one of the main differences in the way that people dressed was that women wore a head covering, especially uh, married women. So you, you, look at the, you look into society, uh, men and women are sort of dressed almost the same, and um, but the women, they wear this head covering. So within this culture, a head covering, the wearing of a veil or a shawl or a piece of cloth over the head uh, was an indicator of gender and marital status. It was an item of clothing that differentiated between men and women and it signaled to society that this woman was married. So within this context, head coverings equaled woman equaled potentially married. Just like when we go to a wedding today, the women are wearing the white wedding gown is usually the bride. In other words, the white wedding gown signals something or someone, points to something that everyone in society can recognize. That is the bride. So in the Greco-Roman world, the veil, the head covering, was a social indicator of gender and marital status. Now we've got to keep this in mind. Thinking about the veil, we come to this passage, we think about the veil, we're thinking women, we're thinking married. And, we, and the first part of the sermon is about the men. So we're trying to figure out what does that mean for the men? How is that significant for them? So we're thinking, all right, veiling women married. But this was not all. In pagan worship, the priests or the Roman men of, of a higher standing or a higher status, and what they would do uh, during pagan worship is that they would pull their togas. Now a toga is a long piece of cloth that they would wrap around them. I mean, you see this in, in movies like The Gladiator, you know, those Roman soldiers, they, they have this red or colored item wrapped around them, a toga. And so in, in pagan worship, uh, what the priest would do, it, he would take that toga and cover his head with it. They would pull their togas over their heads when they practiced their pagan rituals and prayers. So they would pull this toga over their head in worship of a pagan idol. And so this time, head covering 
in man pointed to pagan worship. Right, so head covering uh, in the society of the time, you see that, it, it, it signals to you women, it signals to you married, potentially. But the other thing that head covering pointed to in men was pagan worship. Priests at a temple. So they used their togas in this manner because this was also how the emperor, Augustus, was sometimes portrayed. Augustus saw himself as a kind of religious head over the many religions that existed within the, the, within the Roman Empire. So statutes of the emperor would sometimes show him wearing a toga, a head covering. And so for a man to be seen in worship with a head covering carried with it associations and images of the emperor. It carried with it associations of pagan worship and religion. But this was not all. Pagan worship in Corinth often involved an aspect of promiscuity and immorality. Pagan worship involved temple prostitutes, both female and male. And in that context, some male prostitutes would grow their hair to appear more effeminate, to attract other men. And so, in that culture, a man with long hair would be associated with the pagan male prostitutes that would serve at the pagan temples. Uh, people would make those connections because it was the norm for men to have short hair. Do you see how the, the context sort of illuminates, hopefully, this passage as we think about head covering in men? We're saying, we, when we see a man wearing a head covering, we're thinking, well, that's, that's usually what a woman would do. And if you see a man wearing a head covering, you think, oh, well, maybe that's not what it's signaling. Maybe it's signaling pagan worship. Maybe it's signaling some allegiance to the emperor. Maybe it's signaling something, some connections with the temple and the male prostitutes. And with all this in the background, head covering signaling the female gender, head covering used in pagan worship, head covering associated with male prostitutes, with all this as the historical, cultural, and religious context of the day, Paul then says to the Christian men in the church at Corinth in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. You come to church on a Sunday, you live in Corinth, and you come to church and you cover your head, you're just sending all the wrong messages. So Paul says to them, do not do it. And in verse 3, for a Christian man to disobey this command would be to dishonor Christ himself. By wearing a head covering, he looks like a pagan rather than a believer in Christ, which we are all meant to, imi we are meant to imitate Christ in this case, which we didn't read that verse, but chapter 11 begins, verse 1. It's kind of linked to chapter 10, but you, you see there, chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Christians are to imitate Christ. In this case, he was sending all the wrong message. He was actually Im imitating the pagan world. 
But a believer in Christ, uh, who by faith has come under the rule of Christ, was to imitate Christ because Christ was the head of the church. So to bring into the worship of the church a practice that confuses distinctions and roles uh, between men and women in the church, Paul says, is ungodly and wrong. To adopt within the worship of the church a practice that points back to pagan worship and to the emperor rather than to God is wrong, if not blasphemous. And Paul says that it does not honor Christ. It does not honor God. He says in verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and he is the glory of God. Uh, Paul com Paul's command is grounded in a theological framework that goes all the way back uh, to the creation of mankind. A Christian man, by his actions, was to declare the glory of God, the glory of his creator, the image of whom he is bearing, rather than imitate a practice that was born in pagan worship and out of a worldly pagan society. So Paul doesn't tell them not to wear head coverings simply because it's a cultural, social, uh, and because it has all these cultural, social, and religious associations, even though that's true. He tells the men not to wear head coverings because Paul understands that this practice is undermining something that is at the heart of God's purposes for men and women in the church uh, and in society as a whole. But for now, or where we are at in in the sermon, uh, Paul says to the Christian men living in Corinth, do not wear a head covering in worship. But to us, the application is, uh, do not bring into the church a practice that belongs to the world. In worship, God should be exalted and honored and should be at the center of everything that we do and, and no one else. We should protect our time of worship from anything in the world that would distract us from God. We should protect our worship of God from anything that would make the Christian message or the Christian witness confusing to other people. So the passage, in a sense, even though it's dealing with head coverings, it's dealing with it within the context of worship. And I think I was debating about whether I should say this or not, but I've written it now. So I'm just going to say this and then we're going to move to the next point. And I think that in this context, uh, we should uh, uh, preserve the theological... I think what Paul is saying is that as he sees uh, those men are, are taking for themselves things that belong, if you want, to the pagan society, to belong to women, he's saying what they're doing there is that they're losing something that God has particularly assigned to men and women, particular distinctions. And when, as Paul sees this blending... Uh, the, this, uh, the, the men wearing their head coverings and the women uncovering themselves, what he sees is this, is this confusion of those distinct, distinct roles and responsibilities that God has given to men as opposed to women and vice versa. So in the church, for example, eldership should be male. And so uh, the responsibility of leading and shepherding and preaching should not be abdicated by the men of our church, by our elders. That's a, a God-given role and function that's given to them. And even if they think they're delegating to someone, they should not. That's something that God has entrusted to them to do. 
And they have to hold on to it preciously and love it. And I think as they, uh, when it comes to head covering and this distinction being blended in between male and female, Paul is looking at that and he's saying we, we're losing something there about the distinctions. And I'm just going to leave it there. And feel free to ask me any other questions about this at the end of the service. I just don't have enough time to, to deal with all the intricacies of the passage. And now we move to the women. So we looked at the men, and Paul says to them, um, be careful that you are not bringing into the life of the church, into the worship, uh, practices that are worldly. And now we turn to the women, the issue of head covering for women. Um, and once again, I think the historical context is important for our understanding of this passage. In traditional Roman setting and life, the norm uh, for a married wife was modesty, fidelity, and submission to her husband. A married woman would indicate to those around her that she is married and faithful and submissive to her husband by wearing a head covering. In fact, one of the central features in a Roman wedding would be the veiling of the bride, not the unveiling of the bride as we might do today. So in Roman, in Roman culture, you, you veil the bride, and you're saying, now you're mine, you're my wife, and um, you're showing that you're married. An illustration of this, a contemporary example of this, would be a woman wearing a wedding ring, wearing her wedding ring. By wearing her wedding ring, a woman would indicate to those around her that she is married. Now imagine the married woman that goes on a trip overseas and doesn't, doesn't wear it. And imagine you meet that woman overseas and you notice this. And you think, oh, that's a bit odd. I know that you're married, but you're not wearing your wedding ring. You, you, you'll think about it, or maybe you wouldn't. Maybe it's just me. But the wedding ring signals something, says to the world that they, here is a married woman. However, in Roman culture, um, those rules of fidelity and chastity and modesty didn't apply to the husbands. Uh, the husbands, uh, they were allowed to be promiscuous. In fact, it was expected that, in a sense, that they would be. So, for example, at a dinner party, if you invent, invited guests, the hosts uh, were expected to provide slaves and prostitutes to their guests. It was an extremely promiscuous society. And to, dis to, di to distinguish then between the married women at a dinner, at a party, from the prostitutes, how would you know that? The married woman would be wearing a veil. Yeah? So the, the married woman wore a head covering and the prostitute did not. They would wear their hair down, uncovered, and loose. And so in this Greco-Roman society, to not wear a head covering when you were a woman was a symbol of promiscuity. It's, it signaled all the wrong things about the character of a woman. It was disgraceful. And so Paul says to the Christian women in the church at Corinth, in verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's like a married wife not wearing her wedding ring. Since it is 
the same as if her head were shaven. It appears that some women in the church, on the basis of their newfound freedom in Christ, on the, on the basis maybe of Paul's teachings, uh, that in Christ there is no slaves or free, no males or female, uh, but that everyone has the same status in Christ, were starting to do away with their head coverings, even refusing to wear them. And to them, within this context, Paul says that they ought to cover their heads. Because not to do so is sending all the wrong messages, is as shameful as having their, hairs, their heads shaved, which was the punishment inflicted to adulterous women. It was a disgrace to them, and it was a disgrace to their husbands as well. So Paul says in verse 6, uh, for if a wife will not cover her head, then uh, she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So in this context, Paul says to the married woman, wear your head covering. He would have said to us maybe today, wear your wedding ring. But the, the greater application or principle is that a married woman within the church ought to wear their head covering or wedding ring because it displays an attitude. Displays an attitude, a posture of love and submission to their husbands rather than rebellion against their husbands. So when they did, when they did wear their veil, they honored their head. That is, their husbands. And they pleased God. So when the man wore the head covering in church, now we're talking about the men, when the men did it, it brought within the church a symbol of idolatry, a symbol of pagan worship, and it shifted the focus of worship away from God. And when the women refused to wear their head covering, it brought into the church a symbol of promiscuity, a symbol of disunity within the married couple. And it distracted people from the worship of God. And in both cases, therefore, the proper worship of God was disrupted. And it reminded me of what John Calvin said about the principle that regulates worship. John Calvin said, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctified by His Word. In other words, we are not free to approach or worship God as we please. We are to worship God according to what He has prescribed to us in His Word. We are not to approach God on our own terms, but we are to approach God on His terms. In the Old Testament, the two sons of Aaron learned this the hard way when they offered the wrong kind of worship to God. They approached God on their own terms and they were killed, consumed by fire that came from God. And so how we approach God in worship is important, which is something that we are reminded of in this passage. We ought to worship God in a way that is pleasing to Him. And in this passage, it's more I'll be careful how I say this. It's more than a, a hard attitude. And of course, the hard attitude to God in worship is important, extremely important. I want to be coming to God with the right attitude of heart. We have heart that is repenting and a heart of faith and trust uh, in God, loving God, uh, with sincerity in our hearts. This is important. But I think the, the, there is a focus here on, on what we bring externally with us when we come to worship. In this particular case, how they covered or uncovered their heads. So for us, 
today, uh, head coverings do not really carry the same kind of symbolism or association that it carried then. So it's not really relevant for us. Should we be covering our heads or not? Should we be in, is it okay to wear hats or beanies? Doesn't carry the same sort of cultural relevance, but we can still ask ourselves the question, what am I doing or not doing or wearing or not wearing that is a source of distraction, a source of temptation, a source of confusion, a source of contention, a source, a source of provocation to other people within the context of worship? Isn't that a good question for us to be asking? Is what I'm doing, now of course the hard attitude is important, but is there something that I'm doing or wearing or carrying or displaying or communicating that somehow distracting others from the worship of God? Is what I'm doing sending the wrong kind of message and the wrong kind of testimony about Christ? And Paul says in verse 10, for example, as an argument that the angels are observing us. So the question is, what kind of message are we projecting to the world and to others in the church by our approach and attitude to worship? So when a visitor comes to our church, what do they observe? What do they say? Do they say, oh, this was a cool church. And we think, wow, that's great, they think we're cool. Or do they say, this is a God-honoring church. I heard God's word preached today. Do they see a focus on God and on Christ? Or are they distracted and their attention carried by other things? Is our time of worship communicating that God is at the heart of our worship? As I was thinking through this, the thought crossed my mind. I wonder what Paul would say to us today about mobile phones in the church. I struck the other day, I went to the movie theater and I, as I, right before the movie started, there was this ad that says, and now uh, we please request that you put your phones on silent or please turn it off. You have this before the movie? What about in the church? That's food for thought for you. And finally, let me close with this. Um, what is the governing principle of, of, or argument behind all of this? Now, to be honest, I think that Paul has five arguments. And I'm going to be only going to do one as I close off, but I think I've touched on two before in the two other points. But let's close off with this one. What is the governing principle and argument behind all of this? What is the theology behind it? And I hope that I don't lose you here. Maybe I've lost you already. Uh, why does Paul say in verse 3, for example, why does he start there? In verse 3, what does he say, before he even goes into the detail, the nitty-gritty of everything that he's going to say next, what does he say in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. What is the point that he's trying to make in this passage and in this context? Well, uh, what is Paul doing is showing us that there exists in God between the Father and the Son, a model, a pattern of headship and submission. And this pattern of headship and submission is then reflected in the relationship that exists between Christ and His church. And this same pattern of headship and submission is also reflected 
in the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. So if you look again at verse 3, now this time, uh, beginning from the end of verse 3, so that we sort of see the order. So the head of Christ, Christ has a head, is God. Here's the pattern. One is in a position of authority, the other one is in a position of submission. The head of a wife is her husband. One is in a position of submission, the other one is in a position of authority. The head of everyone is Christ. Now the word head carries with it the idea of authority over someone or something. It's as if to say, it's like we use this expression, someone is a head of state. So he's a symbol of authority that is above. Now you will notice that in this pattern, even Christ is under a head. His head is God the Father. However, uh, this doesn't mean that Christ is inferior to the Father. We know this. We know this from our Bibles, that the Father and the Son are co-equal and co-eternal, both of the same divine nature, both of the same essence, and equal in all, in all of their attributes. God the Father is not more divine or more superior than the Son, and the Son is not inferior to the Father. However, in the plan of redemption, they play different roles. They are equal in nature and equal in character and in all their attributes, but in salvation, they play different roles. The Father sends the Son. The Father sends the Son to die for us. The Father does not die for us. He did not die for us. The Son did. It was the Son who gave His life as a ransom for the sins of sinners like us. It was the Son who submitted Himself to the will of His Father in redemption. And though He cried out that this bitter cup would be taken from Him, yet He said, not my will, but God's will, my Father's will be done. So for our sake and for our salvation, what does God the Son uh, do? He submits Himself to the headship of His loving, caring Father in heaven. That, by Him doing this, doesn't make Him any inferior or to the Father. The Father and the Son are one. Who sees the Father, has, who sees the Son, sees the Father. And this same parallel, this same model of headship and submission is parallel then in the church. The church submits to the loving authority of her head. Christ. So within the context of the church, we submit to our head Christ. He is our head. He is a, a, um, a man of authority, a symbol of authority over us. And we want to do anything, everything in his honor. And the same parallel exists within marriage. A wife submits to the loving authority of her head, that is, her husband. And so Paul shows the pattern. And in this passage, the implication is that in worship, a man should not cover his head because if he does, he dishonors Christ, who is his head. Instead, he should obey Christ and submit to Christ's teachings and not cover his head. He does not cover his head, uh, he, do, he does not cover his head to honor Christ who died for him. Yes, there is all these cultural and religious associations with it. But ultimately, it's, not, it's kind of like, this is like secondary. He does it to honor his head, Jesus Christ. So the, the reason the Christian man does not cover his head in that context um, is linked to his understanding that he is now under Christ. He has a head. 
And so the wife, if she uncovers her head, she dishonors her husband, who is her head. She is meant to honor him, not to be a disgrace to him. He is her head. And submission does not mean inferiority. It means embracing the pattern of headship and submission established by God himself. God, in his wisdom, gives us this pattern. The wife obeys her husband. She obeys her husband, who him, who loves her as Christ loves the church and is prepared to, give, to die for her. That's, that's the kind of submission we're talking about. Here is a wife that is saying, I voluntarily put myself under, under this husband who loves me like Christ loved the church and is prepared to die for me. This, therefore, is Paul's theological foundation, the pattern of headship and submission. is modeled after the cross and it's modeled after the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, where the Son submitted to the Father even unto death and obeyed him willingly, joyfully, not grudgingly. So ultimately, this is why they should obey Paul's commands. Ultimately, this is why all of us are called to obey Christ, because he is our head. He loved us. He suffered for us. He went to that cross for you and I to die for us. And, was, and he was raised for our justification so that we could stand here tonight justified, reconciled with God, so that we can come together tonight to worship him. So we obey Christ because he's our head. And we do it with love. This is our Lord. This is our, this is our Savior. This is our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we have come tonight to praise him, to worship him, to honor him. And in worship, we want him to be at the heart of everything we do. And we don't want anyone to be distracted by anything else. Let me pray for us. Gracious and loving Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. That it's, um, it's full of exciting and um, awe-inspiring and challenging passages. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for all that you teach us in your word, for the wisdom that it contains. We pray, Father, that you would continue to work in our hearts and in our minds to help us understand this passage and how it applies to us in our own setting, in our own context. And we pray, Father, that in all things that we would honor you and I would give glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.